And now chapters 26 through 31. Uh, It's almost as if Job here just kind of finally unburdens a lot of things that were kind of on his chest. Uh, It seems that he would say a few things and they would respond. It was, you know, kind of almost like the presidential debate. You know, if you watched that last evening, kind of a a fitting moment there, you know, uh, as soon as one finished, the other was ready to just take over right away. And uh, at least they didn't quite interrupt each other as as bad as that was, (laughs) Uh, if you had a chance to watch that, sadly. But uh, at this point, Job kind of has his time now where he just sort of unburdens for a few chapters how he's feeling and what he's still wrestling with. In chapter 26, he was really emphasizing to a great degree just the the power of God uh, and God's power particularly seen in creation and some of the marvelous things that God has done and how he stirred up the very powerful seas with his power and controlled the storms and has created the heavens and the earth. And and Job said at the end of chapter 26, and, and despite all the great things we see about God, all the wonderful ways that we're able to see God's power at work. He says, we're just seeing the mere edges of all of God's ways, of all of God's power and all of God's abilities. In other words, we're just seeing the slightest slice of the pie of how great and incredible God really is. Now, as we come to chapter 27, Job continues to carry on now. It says chapter 27, verse one, moreover, Job continued his discourse, recognizing his friends aren't going to interrupt. He, okay, I have a platform to speak a little longer. So Job now continues his discourse and said, chapter 27, verse 2, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. So Job's going to kind of almost the idea here almost sounds like he's making a vow to some degree as God lives. Therefore, uh, I'm vowing that as God lives, these things are the way that I feel. But you notice, again, you can tell where Job's struggle is that he directly now says there in verse two regarding God. He says, God, who has taken away my justice, the idea is taken away my rights. What Job's in a sense expressing there is I feel like at this point that God has completely declined all of the rights that I once had between me and him. At one point in time, I felt like I had a right uh, to relationship with God in a healthy way. At one point in time, I felt like I had a right to approach God and a right to have God's ear and that God would listen to me. But, But he says at this point in time, and again, remember, he's struggling through his sufferings. Uh, Job says, I feel like God has just completely taken away my rights, like he's declined me of the privileges I once had with him. And instead he's done nothing. The almighty, he said, but make my soul bitter, just a constant state of bitterness and agita that Job was feeling within. He says, verse three, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit far be it from me that i should say that you are right till i die he says i will not put away my integrity from me my righteousness i will hold fast and will not let it go my heart shall not reproach me as long as i live so notice job gives testament there in verse three to this understanding that the very reason he has breath in his lungs is completely dependent upon God. He says there in verse three, as long as my breath is in me, and then notice he calls what his breath is. He describes it. He says, it's the breath of God in my nostrils. 
Uh, again, the, the Bible tells us right from the creation of mankind, the very first man created, it says that Adam created God. Remember, it says out of the dust of the ground. And again, if you scientifically reduce basically the, the basic elements of your human body. I mean, these are incredible bodies, the complexity, the sophistication of how we have been put together by God with our organs and our systems and what we can function, we're capable to do. Uh, if you really reduce all of the basic elements of the human body down, it really boils down to the basically the same components you find in, in common soil, in dirt, uh, and, and it's quite an interesting thing to think about. Think about what God can do with just a handful of dirt. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And what God is able to do, but it says that God took, and it says that he created Adam from the dust of the ground. And then remember it says, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the breath of life. That is God created Adam's physical frame and then God breathed into him the life of God to give him physical life. And it's almost as if God hit the power button and the, the whole computer system then turned on. You can have a great computer system, but if you don't have a power source or you don't ever hit the power button, it don't matter how complex it is. Well, again, apart from God giving us breath in our lungs, which he's the one that still sustains that. Last I checked, we haven't been keeping ourselves breathing the last 15, 20 minutes. God keeps our heart beating and, and here Job recognized that. He says, as long as I have breath in my lung, God holds every breath really in his hands. At any given point in time, God can cause the breath in our lungs to depart, and we will then depart physically from our existence. But he says, as long as God's given me breath in my lungs, notice he says in verse 4 through 6, he says, I am not going to compromise what I know to be true just to agree with you in the air of what you're promoting. Again, what have his friends been trying to promote? They've been trying to promote to him, Job, as much as maybe you don't recognize it, or maybe you don't even want to acknowledge it, there must be something wrong in your life spiritually between you and God for God to allow you to be suffering in the way that you are. There must be some known sin or unknown sin that maybe you're not even aware of, and something has happened between you and God, and that is the result and the basis of, of your suffering to some degree. Uh, and though Job knew that he wasn't a perfect man or sinless in any way, he knew that he wasn't consciously outdoing something evil or he wasn't reaping the consequences of some wrongdoing that he had in their life. And though they kept hounding this idea and trying to press it upon him, Job says, look, I, I am not going to, look what he says in verse five, he says, far be it for me that I should say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me and my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. So he says, I I'm sorry, but he says, you know, I need to maintain my integrity and I'm not going to compromise just to please you, to agree with you. He says, I need to hold my integrity before God, and it would be unrighteous of me to say that what you're saying is correct when I know that it's not. Again, Job was uh, concerned about his own integrity, and we should be as well, rather than just pleasing or accommodating people. He says, verse 7, May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. So he says, if anybody should be suffering, he says, uh, let that come upon the one who is truly being unrighteous. And then he goes on to say, verse 8, regarding the unrighteous person or the sinful man. For what is the hope, Job says, of the hypocrite? 
though he may gain much if God takes away his life. Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? So Job makes a very fitting point there. He says, what really is the hope of the hypocritical or the unrighteous man who is living in sin against God? Job says, even if he prospers now on earth, is that really beneficial? Because at any given moment, the God who controls the very breath in our lungs can take away his life. He says, though he may gain much, that is in this earthly life, he says, what does that amount to if God takes away his life in an instant? He says, is that going to benefit him? And I look at the words of Job there and they remind me spiritually of what Jesus said from a New Testament perspective. Remember, Jesus said, what does it profit a man? He didn't say if he gains much. Remember, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his very own soul. In other words, Job says, what does it matter if somebody can gain a whole lot? They can gain much on this earth. And that tends to be where most people direct the majority of their time, right? I mean, just read around, you know, watch what goes on, look at bumper stickers, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. I mean, that's kind of the general concept that most people are motivated to live out in their existence. That life on this earth is about gaining everything that you can while you're on this earth. Possessions, position, power, pleasure, prosperity. I mean, just it's accumulation. And Job says here, what does it matter if you gain a whole lot, but then God just takes away your life in an instant. You lose everything. And Jesus said, what would it really matter if you gain the whole world? In other words, you gain everything in the world possible and that you forfeit the most valuable thing you have, which is your soul the one thing that you have really no control over and that God's in complete control over. He says, verse 11, I will teach you about the hand of God. That is the idea of the ways of God, the hand of God, the acts of God. Job says, I'll share with you what God's acts are truly like. What is the almighty I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. He says, why then do you behave? Look at Job's language with complete nonsense. I like the way that's translated there. Job says, I, I want to tell you what God's ways and acts are really like. And he says, what I don't understand is if indeed you are seeing the hand of God at work, then he says, why are you behaving, he says, with complete nonsense? You know, Job understands something, that what a person sees about God, what a person truly knows about God always affects the way they behave. A person acts according to what they truly believe in regards to God. So again, it's very fair to say that belief always affects behavior. And behavior is always a reflection of what I really believe. See, we, we can profess things and say things with our mouth, but again, from God's perspective, God understands that what a person truly believes will ultimately influence the way that they behave, right? So uh, for example, if, if I truly believe that God's promises that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, and that I am honoring the Lord with my resources. And that's the context of that passage. Always keep that in mind there. Don't you can't claim a promise out of context. The context of that passage is in regards to the Philippians who were giving unto the Lord and giving unto Paul and his ministry and, and, and honoring and managing their resources in a way that was proper and pleasing with God's design. And then Paul, in promise to that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, 
look, thank you for what you are doing to support me in the Lord's work. And he says that that fruit is going to abound to your account. And then he said, and look, and don't you worry. My God will supply all of your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Because think about the reason why, honestly, most people, for example, may not give unto the Lord, even believers, because they, it's, at the end of the day, it's a faith issue. And well, if I give unto the Lord, then how am I going to pay my bills? Or if I give unto the Lord, how am I going to have excess for this or that? And, and so a lot of times people will use reservation when it comes to honoring the Lord with the first fruits of their resources and managing their money God's way, biblically, because of apprehension that, well, if, how am I going to make it? Or how am I? And look, the Bible says, look, when you do that, my God, Paul says, will supply all of your need. According to his riches, you give of your resources, God will give to you of his riches. He'll take care of you. He'll make sure you have what you need. Again, it doesn't say one, but my God shall supply all of your need, that God will supply for those who honor him in the way that they do properly with the wealth and resources that he supplies to them originally to manage anyway. <laughs> I mean, really, we're just giving back to the Lord a portion of what he's already entrusted completely to us. But again, as the Bible says, my God shall supply all of your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Well, if I believe that, then I'm going to conduct myself in a manner consistent with that. As far as how I manage my resources, giving unto the Lord, giving unto the Lord's work. I'm also then going to behave in a way whereby when a situation arises and I've got some bill that needs to be paid, or so, right, I, I, I'm then going to indicate either by freaking out or by saying, you know what, we're just we're going to do our best and we're going to work hard and be responsible. We're going to have to trust that God's going to come through and God will supply because the Bible says God's promises. My God said he will supply all of my needs according to his glorious riches. And so the belief in that biblical concept affects the way then that we behave. Our, our behavior connects with our belief. So Job here, as he's talking about these things to his friends, and again, just using one analogy there, Job says, look, if you're truly seeing the hand of God, because that's Job, we're trying to tell you how God works. And Job says, well, here's my quandary. He says, if you're seeing the hand of God and you're seeing the way that God acts, and he says, and if you, then why do you behave so nonsensical? <laughs> in other words, the, the, the behavior of nonsense in your life indicates to me that you're not seeing God correctly. Because what you believe is not consistent with the way that you're behaving. And so, again, always important to remember that belief and behavior. Those two things always from God's perspective will line up and reveal what we do believe or don't believe often. So Job then goes on to expound his concept. We've seen it many times. It resurfaces again. Verse 13, he says, look, this is the portion of the wicked man with God. This is what we do know of what happens to the wicked when God repays the wicked man for the evil that he is sowing. He says, and the heritage of the oppressors who've received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, that is for destruction. And his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Now, Job makes some interesting insights here about the outcomes or the fruit that comes into the life of the wicked person who's living in rebellion to God and the consequences that come. One of the consequences Job by observation makes note of here is that when a man lives wicked against God, that his children end up suffering 
as the consequential result of that. Do you see what he says there in verse 14? He says, if his children are multiplied, it ends up being for the sword. That is, his own children end up being destroyed. Destruction, that's what the sword pictures. He says, and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Again, the idea is, is not satisfied with bread is there's neglect and there's lack. And what a fitting picture there of a man who lives wickedly. One of the indications of someone who is living a wicked life against God is they end up ruining their kids' lives and neglecting their children. Sadly, that's a testament. Look at those who have no heart for God that aren't living for God. And a lot of times they are doing things in their patterns of living, their lifestyles, their decisions, their priorities. They are bringing destruction into their children's lives. And a lot of times they're also neglecting their children. And I'm not just talking about monetarily. I'm talking about in more important ways. They're neglecting their children and starving their children for affection and attention and proper investment into their lives. And their kids are not satisfied with that parental love that they truly need. Interesting observation. Job recognizes that mark of the wicked man. He goes on verse 15 to say, and those who survive him as descendants shall be buried in death and their widows shall not weep. The idea is there's no grief when the wicked departs. In some ways there's to some people's mentality relief when a wicked person is no longer spreading their evil behavior and harming people. Though he heaps up, verse 16, though he heaps up silver like dust. You know, I think one translation says there, the idea is, is you know, creating mounds of money. That's the idea there. Somebody just, man, they're just accumulating mounds and mounds of money, doing very well, becoming very wealthy. Heaping up silver, he says, like the dust. Piling up clothing, there for you shoppers, piling up clothing like clay. He may pile it up, but the just will wear it. So you buy all the outfits and the righteous get to wear them someday. <laughs> and the innocent will divide the silver. The idea is he loses all that at a point in time, and it goes on to those who are, in a sense, waiting in line to inherit it. Verse 18, he builds his house, but notice, like a moth. The idea there is great insecurity. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. Those were temporary booths that watchmen would make. They weren't lasting shelters. They were temporary and weak. The rich man will lie down, be not gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. So he had all this great wealth, piled up riches and resources, thought he was so secure. But notice ultimately that money cannot give complete true security because now terrors all of a sudden overtake him like a flood. A tempest, a storm steals him away in the night. So again, as one storm and the whole house comes crashing down in an instant. The east wind carries him away and he is gone, sweeps him out of his place and hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power and men shall clasp their hands at him and shall hiss him. The idea is to mock him out of his very place. So he just speaks of the insecurity of, of wealth and, and prosperity and resources accumulating and accumulating and accumulating and making that a top priority. Again, nothing wrong with being wealthy. The Bible does not demonize being rich, though certain people in the culture want to do that. God doesn't see anything more or less spiritual about being rich or being poor. Money is a tool. It's an instrument. The Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. 
People always misquote that. Oh, money's the root of all kinds of evil. No, money can be a great tool for the kingdom of God to help people, to bless people. The Bible says it's the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. That when there's this love and infatuation, people idolize money. Again, they're heaping it up in piles. There's never enough. And they just continue more and more and more accumulating for selfish and greedy gain. And he says here, thinking that they are so secure, he says, though they heap up piles of wealth in an instant, he says, it just the whole house comes crashing down. And then terror sees them because they realize their money was not sufficient to make them secure in greater and more important ways. You know, I read this portion of scripture, it reminded me again of the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 12, where Jesus was giving a similar warning. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus there said, beware of covetousness. And listen to what Jesus says. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Again, one's life doesn't consist not in what he possesses, in the abundance of things he possesses. It's at that point Jesus told this parable. It's Luke 12, verse 16. If you want to follow along, I'm just going to read it a few verses. Luke 12, 16. Jesus spoke this parable. The ground of a certain rich man, listen, yielded plentifully. Great business is doing well. Prosperity. Things are going great. His ground yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Since I have no room to store my crops. In other words, I'm so profitable I don't even have enough room to store, to pile up, remember Job's words, to pile up all my wealth. I got so much money, the banks can't contain it all. The barns can't hold it all. So he says, what should I do? I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then Jesus said, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So again, wonderful wisdom that Jesus gives to a very common person problem and temptation that we all deal with in our humanity especially in the culture that we live in and you know all the more in our american culture where affluence and prosperity is a lot more commonplace to us we live in a great land of great opportunity and in a you know developed country where the opportunity to prosper and be successful and do well financially is much more of an easy avenue for many people in our nation so these principles of Jesus and from God's word are great reminders to us that we would have a right perspective towards wealth and monetary resources as we serve the Lord and walk with him as his followers. Chapter 28 goes on to then say, surely there is a mine for silver that is a place to go and dig out silver. Now, uh, let me just as kind of a, a brief synopsis talk about where Job's going here in chapter 28. In chapter 28, what Job is going to basically emphasize is how mankind is so skilled to be able to accomplish many different things. Job's going to say, it's amazing what we can achieve as human beings. I mean, men have skill to go and mine the greatest jewels out of the depths of the earth and do all kinds of skillful things. But he's going to say, 
oftentimes we are very misguided in our pursuits. We can achieve incredible things, Job's going to say. It's amazing the achievements of mankind, but oftentimes he says mankind is misguided in what really matters. And a lot of times we're pursuing the wrong things that aren't really as valuable from God's perspective. So he says with this idea in mind, surely there's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth. Again, these are accomplishments of men. Copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess. The idea is mining, digging, chiseling. Again, they're, they're not using hydraulics and uh, you know, power tools. This is old-fashioned. Mining, digging, working hard. You know, I mean, what it really takes to carve out a cave and go into the dark resources of some cave exploring, not knowing what's there, but you're doing it all for the sake of maybe finding a little gold or silver and looking for some you know, different precious metals. A man puts an end to darkness. He will search every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. The idea is under the earth, deep down. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread. The idea is sustenance. The earth provides our needs. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones, that is underneath the surface of the earth, its stones are the source of sapphires. Now, these are precious gems, of course, sapphires. It contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has a falcon's eye seen it. Again, the falcon's eye is very powerful in its ability to see things, but he says they, these even falcons with great sight, they don't even see the things that mankind is able to see digging down into the earth, looking for these precious metals and valuable resources. He says the proud lions, again, the lions have great strength, but they have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots, talking about what man can achieve. He says he cuts out the channels in the rocks. His eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. So then there's, you know, construction, putting up dams, channeling the water for different purposes. What is hidden, he's able to bring forth to light. So Job says it's amazing what we can accomplish, how motivated, how industrious, the things that we can do, you know, dig in dark places, searching and looking for gold and sapphires and precious gems, these things of, of great tangible value to increase our wealth, the great discoveries we can make, the things that we can build, you know, construction and channeling water and so forth. But then he says, the problem is, is quite honestly, we become so misguided in our pursuits, we miss the things that are really most valuable in life. And Job's going to say, what's really valuable is not wealth, but wisdom. And Job's going to say, yeah, we can do all these things to get wealth, but he says, really, the greater thing of value isn't wealth. It's honestly wisdom from God's perspective. And this is what he goes on to say in the rest of the chapter. But where can wisdom be found? That is, who knows how to pursue wisdom as diligently as we pursue wealth? And where is the place of understanding? Man, look at it, verse 13. Man does not know its value. What value? Wisdom. 
God says, as human beings, we always underestimate the value of wisdom. We don't put the right price tag on what it means to pursue wisdom, to become wise, to conduct ourselves in wise ways and how we live and make our decisions. Man doesn't know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be purchased, he says, verse 14 or 15, for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. Now, I have that underlined and noted there, verse 15. He's talking about wisdom. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be paid for its price. In other words, what he's saying there, he's talking about wisdom, not knowledge. Okay? Knowledge is the acquisition of facts, information. That's what we get by, you know, academic pursuits and education. That, that's research. That's where knowledge comes from. Knowledge has its purpose. But wisdom is the right application of facts and knowledge. And wisdom is how to live right. How Because you, you could have lots of facts and information and intelligence and live very foolishly. And all your knowledge is worthless, right? I mean, you can be extremely educated and live like a complete fool and ruin your life. So wisdom, God says, is living well. It's making good decisions. It's how you manage your life, your priorities, your, you know, how you base things and what you do and don't do. Again, it has a much greater impact in regards to the way that we live out our human existence. And talking about wisdom, he says, it cannot be purchased by using gold or silver. Now, the reason that's interesting to me is because think about this. We live in a culture today, and forgive me if this is offensive, it's just my conviction and you're free to disagree. We live in a culture today where higher education is big business. I mean, we thoroughly press and push upon every young person coming out of K through 12, you know, uh, regular school and high school that you have got to get a college education or beyond that. And it doesn't matter if you can afford it or not. You should borrow as much money as you feel led to borrow to get that higher education because you have got to have a college education. You know, the idea that somebody may be more wired for trade work or just, you know, blue collar work or construction work or doing that's kind of like it's almost like that's diminished and devalued now. And, and so it seems to me that much of, and again, I say this with some degree of because I have adult children now watching the process a little bit. <laughs> I'm, it's tough navigating this whole thing of, you know, it seems to me that I'm sad to say that a lot of college uh, acquisition is about big bucks. And it's ridiculous the amount of cost it is now to get in higher education. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insanity in my estimation. But notice the word of God says, if you want wisdom, you can't purchase that for gold or silver. So you can borrow fifty, seventy, dollars $150,000 and get a bachelor's, master's, doctorate degree and become incredibly intelligent. But you're not going to get wisdom that way. So higher education has its purpose. If that's a part of somebody's course and track and trajectory, I'm, again, I'm not devaluing uh, education. That's not my intention. But, but God's saying, do you know what people always look the overvalue? They over, never tend to put the right value on is, is getting wisdom, living wisely, maybe taking a wise approach to higher education. 
instead of the conventional cultural approach to higher education. Maybe God's saying, look, what really has greater value is develop wisdom first. Because see, if you develop wisdom first, then everything else you do in your life is going to become a lot more valuable and precious because you're going to have the more important thing, which is wisdom. So again, never overestimate the, the worth of wisdom and think somehow education and intelligence trumps that. But sadly, it seems that we're kind of missing that in our, in our modern culture. You know, God help us to bring back the importance to our young people to let them realize, look, what you need first is wisdom. That's great value. Education has its place, and if it's a part of the path, okay. But he says, you can't spend gold or silver. No education at the greatest institutions is going to make some young man or young woman wise. Wisdom comes about in a whole different way. And he says, wisdom is the foremost and the important thing. He says, verse 16, talking about the value of wisdom. Look, God wants to show why. He says, it cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. That was the most precious form of gold in that ancient culture. And he says, you can't even value wisdom or measure it with gold. In precious onyx or sapphire, neither gold nor crystal can equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for jewelry or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz. For the price of wisdom, I love that language, the price of wisdom. What's the word word price mean? The price means not only something has value, but it also means it costs something. Again, I don't know about you. I didn't just wake up wise one day. Still waiting for that. (laughs) I wake up more like a fool every day. There's a price to wisdom, a price to pay. You know, the Bible says, and I remember reading this very early on when I was a brand new Christian, and it kind of directed part of the way that I tried to navigate my life. He who walks with the wise grows wise. Well, I can do that. Just let me find a couple of wise men in the Lord, and and I'm just going to kind of try and walk next to them and watch them or walk with them or walk behind them and because I want to get wise. I want to live wise like it seems like they live wise. But there is a cost, you know, a cost of spending time with God, who's the one who gives wisdom, spending time in God's word from where wisdom comes from. There's the price of having to, you know, try and live wisely and at times make difficult, costly decisions where we got to maybe deny our desires or deny the approval of other people or not conform to the patterns of the world when everybody's like, well, I, mean, you, I mean, come on, you're, you're entitled to this. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, you're. I mean, you're, you're 22 years old. You, know, you should have a mansion, six SUVs by now. I mean, what's, your kid doesn't have iPhone 12. I mean, they're three years old. What are you, depriving your children? I, I mean, that's, like, that's difficult. Sometimes you've got to pay the price of being willing to, okay, I'll pay the price for wisdom. But he says the price of wisdom is so valuable. He says no jewelry, no onyx, no quartz. The price of wisdom is above rubies. Interesting, above rubies. Rubies weren't just extremely valuable rubies are one of the most rare jewels so again it speaks of the rarity of those willing to pay the price of wisdom the price of wisdom is above rubies the topaz of ethiopia cannot equal to it nor can it be valued in pure gold almost get the idea god saying how valuable wisdom really is if you notice all the emphasis poetically there from where then does wisdom come well that's a good question where is the place of understanding It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. These ideas seem that the common man doesn't just see it on the surface. 
even destruction and death. That is, after people are kind of on their way out at the last moment, destruction and death. Say, we have heard a report about it. We've heard about this thing, wisdom with our ears. Verse 23, he answers, God understands its way, and he knows its place. In other words, where does wisdom come from? Job says very simply, it comes from God. God understands the way of wisdom because he is the source of all wisdom. When we get to the book of Proverbs, which is a biblical book about the subject of wisdom particularly, it says this in Proverbs chapter 2. And listen again to the idea of pursuing wisdom. My son, if you receive my words, a younger one listening to an older one. My son, if you receive my words, treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. If you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The Bible saying that's wisdom. And then he says this, verse six, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Again, who is the source of wisdom? Not what? God. God, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Again, a professor, an intelligent person, they can teach us facts and information about all kinds of things. But only the Lord can give wisdom. And the value of wisdom is so important. He says, seek it out. God understands the way of wisdom Receive that wisdom by being with him and spending time with him because he can impart it into your life. He says, verse 24 of chapter 28, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind, a portion, the waters by measure. The idea is how God used wisdom in creation here is what's being described. And again, we see references to that to other places in the Bible, how God himself utilized wisdom to be able to bring about creation in the way that he did. He says of God and his wisdom, verse 26, that God made a law for the rain. That is, he set boundaries for the rain. He set laws in order for, again, precipitation. And, and again, so you have evaporation and then condensation and then precipitation. And so this whole process, this law and system of hydraulics that God's created in his wise way of taking care of the earth. And also God's created a path for the thunderbolt. And then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out and said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Interesting. God gives there a, kind of a definition. God says, do you want to know what wisdom looks like? It's reverence for God. He says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. How do you know when somebody is becoming a wise person? They are someone who has a deep reverence for the Lord. They have a respect for God in the way that they just live their life. They live their life in a way of, I'm accountable to God for everything. And so there's a sense of conviction. There's a sense of integrity. There's a sense of high moral value because everything that matters most to them is about, you know what, I fear being accountable to the Lord for what I do or don't do or say or don't say. And he says, now you know you're starting to become wise because he says the wise person is the one who has a healthy fear and a reverence of the Lord. And therefore, because of that, what do they do? They show their understanding from departing from evil. 
hey, because I fear the Lord, uh, I don't want to play with evil. I don't want to pretend with evil. I don't want to continue in evil. I need to depart from evil because God's aware of any evil doing that we're involved in. So he says, those are marks of true wisdom and understanding. And Job further continued his discourse and said, oh, that I were as in the months past. So now Job's reflecting back on the time before all of his hardships and tragedies. Again, he's longing for those days before his suffering started. Oh, that as where I were in the months past, as in the days when God watched over me. Now you can tell Job's struggling here because again, he's always shifting gears in the midst of his struggle. He's up, he's down, he's up, he's down. And now he's back in this kind of digressing mentally, emotionally. And he says, man, I missed those months in the past when God actually watched over me. When God was taking care of me and paying attention to my life, when his lamp shone upon my head, when his favor was upon me, and when his light, I walked through the darkness. So I missed the days when God actually gave me light and clarity. I feel like I have no light anymore, no direction, no clarity. Again, this is how Job was feeling in the midst of his struggles. Just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, And when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, again, that was when his family was all there before they departed. He's reflecting upon missing the time of prosperity when his life seemed blessed and comfortable and things were going well. He says, when my steps were bathed with cream, that is milk, it's a term of prosperity, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. Again, cream and and oil, these were... These were luxuries in the ancient culture. So Job's remembering the time when he was prospering, when things were going well before the hardships set in. He said, when I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square. Now, again, remember, the gate of the city was where all of the elders and the wise people gathered together. And the gate of the city were typically where the people in the land met who were the you know, the the wise and older individuals who would strategize for wards, where they would make plans about city things, where they would make judgments. It was kind of the judicial area. This is what the gate of the city was. It's where the elders of the land gathered to make decisions. So if you were in the gate of the city, you were one of the wise people in your community because that's where all the decisions were made. That's why Jesus said, remember in the New Testament, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Again, what was Jesus talking about? Was he talking about that Satan's coming at us with literal gates off of, and he's going to bring his gates against it? No, he's talking about all the strategies and the plots and the ideas and the plans of hell, the devil and his demons, saying that won't prevail against my church. They'll come against it, but they won't prevail. Well, Job says at one point in time, it's kind of reflecting on his past. You can tell Job was a pretty impressive man. Again, he's not boasting here. He's just reflecting on what his life used to be like before his world fell apart and he lost his children and lost his business and lost his health and things just went spiraling downward in catastrophe. He says, I missed those days when I went to the gate, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. The idea is out of reverence, such respect for Job, the young men had towards him. And even the aged men arose and stood. Now that's very countercultural because Typically, those younger would stand up out of respect for the aged. That was how it happened in that culture. So when an older person stood up for someone younger than them, 
that was a very, very strong indication of complete respect towards a person because it was a very patriarchal society and there was a great, great emphasis upon respect for your elders, those older than you chronologically. So he says here, not only did young men have respect for me, but he says, even the aged, those older than me, they would actually arise and stand out of respect when Job would walk by. It shows you what kind of respect he had in this community. And the princes even refrained from talking, put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. That is when people saw Job coming, they were astonished. It was almost as if he had such respect. There was almost a reverence that Job was, again, remember, such a godly, righteous man. Even political leaders had respect for Job. They would become quiet when he came by. They would speak words of blessing towards him. When the eye saw, then it approved me. So he had the approval of many because of the way that he lived his life in godliness and righteousness. He describes as well other things that he did. Verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried out. So Job was a very generous man. He had a heart to help the poor and those who were less fortunate. He says, verse 12, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. So Job was a man of compassion. If someone was an orphan or fatherless, someone in a tough situation, their parent abandoned them, Job would take consideration and he would get involved in those situations. Hey, this person has no parent. They're fatherless. They're helpless. His heart was moved. He was a man of great compassion and generosity and looked to help those who were in difficult circumstances. The blessing of the perishing man came upon me. The idea is the blessing of being thankful for being helped. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy because Job apparently was gracious and helpful to widows as well. They would sing for joy over Job. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, he says. I gave direction to people. I was feet to the lame. I helped people who were struggling in their walks. I was a father to the poor. And I searched out the case that I did not know. Again, there's Job, you know, protecting, assisting. He says, verse 17 as well, I was also very protective. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Then I said, verse 18, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. So the idea there is Job just speaking of how his life was once blessed, prosperous, and even quite comfortable. I mean, that's the concept there. Again, it's poetic language, which is, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as in the sand. The idea is just in my comfy little nest. Here I am. I'm just, I'm just going to settle in. Life is good. He was prosperous. He was respected. He had his family all around him. And he says, I'm, just, I'm in my comfy little nest, and I'm just going to live out my days and die in my comfy little nest, and I'm not disturbed, safe in my own little nest. And little did Job know that God was going to rattle his nest. Little did Job have any idea that as he was in his comfy little nest that God was going to stir up the nest a little bit because God had some more things he wanted to do in Job's life. He wasn't ready for Job to just retire comfy in his little nest. Job, I'm not done with you. Some things I want to do with you. 
some things I want to show through you and some ways I want to work. And again, Job was comfy in his nest. He says, I miss those days of being comfy in my nest because I'm not comfy no more. He says, verse 21, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. The idea is longing as the rain would long when it was parched, you know, for the help and the refreshment of the rains to come upon it, the ground would. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it. And the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and I sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army as one who comforts mourners. Look at the first verse of chapter 30. But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers, he says, I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Talk about a reversal. Job says, at one point in time, I had this very prosperous, wonderful life, he says, and I had respect and I was helping people. And now, boy, just a complete turn of the tables. But what a great life, I mean, Job lived. Again, he's not bragging in chapter 29. He's just making an honest assessment of saying, I miss my former life. Think about it. Here's chapter 29, and Job's speaking about all these things in verses 21 and 22 and 23. You notice what he's saying there as well? He says, men listened to me. They waited. They kept silence for my counsel. So Job was very respected. He was the type of guy who people sought out his counsel. And he gave counsel to a lot of people and helped a lot of people with their challenges and problems and how to navigate things and how to you know, seek God's will. So, I mean, he was a very helpful, wise individual. And I want you to think about this. We're at chapter 29 in the book of Job. Again, Job is not bragging. This is the first time Job ever really says anything about what his life was really like. I mean, you would have thought... By chapter three, he would have pulled out those stops. Listen, do you know who I am? Generous, wise, respected. I mean, he, he doesn't do that. It takes till chapter 29. Finally, Job actually tells us a little bit about himself. Because Job was this man of impeccable character. Yet he never shined the light on himself about it. I mean, he was this man who God's bragging about. And yet, nonetheless, he was never the type of individual who was reading his own press clippings. He wasn't advertising how great of a guy he was. He just lived. He just lived. I mean, here are 29 chapters, and finally you get to see some further practical insight of what kind of guy Job really was. He was quite a man, quite a man. Great things there for us to learn for, I think, all of our lives in regards to some things that we might aspire towards. Job's life is a picture, an illustration of what he's been talking about in the prior chapters, wisdom. It's a picture of wisdom. Apparently, Job valued wisdom, and that's why Job lived the way he lived in chapter 